off-grid is always the way to be if possible. I think of this in the tower as the fronts of the last few days accumulate, feeling compelled to move along with them over the scarf inland. When the heat comes, it too can disconnect people from the grid. There is nothing stranger than trying to make a home where one unbelongs, where one can't ultimately fit. We don't believe in possessing, in property per se, but we do believe in the right of all people to be homed and to be allowed to feel home. Home is not about theft or dispossessing. It's about a right to respectfully coexist and to define small-scale interactions against the backdrop of the larger world. Interestingly, the Mennonite women who ran the health store in Mount Vernon, though not vegans themselves, understood where we were coming from, and in supporting our needs, they expanded the possibility of home. The difference for them wasn't alien, but part of present. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Western Australian poet, writer, and activist John Kinsella, whose new book, Displaced, A Rural Life, is a reflection of belonging and unbelonging in rural Western Australia. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be with you, Max. And so you've just returned home from some time spent overseas, including a certain event in Zurich. What were you doing over there? Yeah, well, that was interesting. That was um, the big um, protest against the World Economic Forum and I did my own, as I often do, little um, side street protest um, against rapacity, basically, against greed, against um, uh, world capitalism. Um, but yeah, we were over there for a couple of months and I was doing research work um, for a, a book on um, issues relating to land degradation, um, how people are reusing land. You know, obviously, I want the land returned to um, safer ecologies be turned into nature reserves, these kinds of things, but often with these old development sites, what they're actually doing is they're sort of putting layers over the top and building you know, new developments. So I was looking at those um, things in Ireland, a little bit in Britain, but especially in Switzerland, um, where it's very relevant to the lake cultures. Um, interestingly and bizarrely, where I was mainly working, there was a, there's a controversial case going at the moment around Roger Federer, Oh, really? um, because he's building this huge lakeside on Lake Zurich lakeside uh, kind of mansion with tennis courts and that on an old um, brickworks um, uh, site. And um, so there's a process of land they're removing, I think, the top 90 centimetres of land because of the contamination. And God knows where they're getting the fill from to replace it on the on the slope. Yeah. But it's controversial because he's blocking out the path around the lake so people can't access the waterfront so there's a big that's a classic kind of um uh brownfield slash greenfield site rehabilitation issue and that all ties into um talking about displaced which isn't your first autobiographical book you've previously written auto and uh fast loose beginnings what did you want to do differently with displaced well this is a totally different book from those Mm. those books are really about a personal journey um and about um basically (laughs) 
collections of my personal failings, which are many, uh, put in the context of other people. This is this is about family in many ways, people I live with, but um, in, in essence, it's actually about how you can or can't or try to have a relationship with place. Um, in this case, it's largely rural Western Australia, but it's also um, very much uh, rural Ohio um, over a five-year period um, and rural Ireland over a three or four-year period. But primarily, it's a, it's a relationship to the rural world and to the non-urban world. Um, when we lived in Ohio, um, we lived in a village called Kenyon, small uh, college village, and then we lived in Mount Vernon, which was a larger town. I think it's about 20, 25,000, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 15, but mm. in that kind of range of people, number of people, it's a small uh, town, not very small, but a smallish town in rural Ohio um, that has very rural conservative values. Um, now, you, I live in the rural, and my partner lives in the rural, and my son lives in the rural, and we're very, we have radicalised left politics, um, peaceful radicalised left politics. And how do we coexist in these really conservative environments? What role can we have in them? And what role do we make for ourselves? And what sort of alienations come up? Mm. So this uh, memoir is about that. And I think fundamentally how as someone who strongly believes, which I emphatically do, that um, land should be returned in Australia on a very large scale to Indigenous people with Indigenous people, Aboriginal people making the decisions over how people then interact with that land and how we all coexist and share, um, but the decision process being mediated through Aboriginal communities rather than through uh you know, um, white male power structures in Canberra. Mm. How do we talk about that? How do we have a relationship with place when you feel that way? And this book kind of spends a lot of time trying to work through all those issues and trying to work out if there is a way. And I do believe there is a way. I think it's called dialogue. I think it's called respect. And I think it's called, you know, basically affection for your fellow humans, whomsoever they are and wherever they come from. I mean... <laughs> We're all people and we need to talk and we need to respect each other. And, and that's what this book is about, place through personal respect. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the, the form of the book a little bit because it's, it's quite similar, I guess, to your previous book, Hollow Earth, which I believe you referred to that as cascading vignettes or something like that. <laughs> exactly. It's like little little chunks of, I guess, mini essays or something like that. Well, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the thing about it is it's... Uh, it was written, interestingly, in um, two big, long rushes of uh, over um, over basically a year. You know, they were like continuous rather than broken up. But what actually happened when I went through to um, do the um, editing and the uh, the remix, if you like, I'd been working with um, an American editor, Jill Belosky, who gave me a lot of feedback, and she was saying that. Um, Interestingly, though it was written like that, it had the episodic feeling, and she thought with some rearrangement it could, um, you know, you could really highlight that and develop it. Then my editor, um, my, who I worked with on the book, Penelope Goods, who's a superb editor, she also went back and she liked the episodic nature of it, and she thought that also it had that narrative flow, and the two could be merged more. And she had a big input on that. So what we ended up with was that vignettish kind of feel sort of like um, you know, mini-analysis and interactions with different places over a period of time, but woven together in such a way 
is that you can move back and forth through time and place. So it tells a number of stories at the same time. So it's telling the story of right now as it's being written and what you're looking at, seeing out the window literally, but then it's flashing back to say living in Ohio or it's flashing back to living in Ireland, but then suddenly you can actually be in Ireland or Ohio almost looking forward. So that kind of almost time slip um, approach and that cascading vignette was exactly, you know, of course, this is um, concurrent, the writing of this with um, Hollow Earth was written over many, many years and mm. ended up being you know, revised into that kind of book from something larger narrative. But this book, the thinking that was going on in writing this was you know, done at a similar time and overlapped strongly with Hollow Earth. So there is a relationship between the two texts stylistically. Um, and consciously too. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. That, you know, the language usage and the um, and the concerns. I mean, Hollow Earth is a novel deeply concerned with rapacity, damage, um, the kind of brutality of the mining industry and capitalism. And this is a personal life um, interaction with place that's also concerned with those things and how you can how you can talk about it with people, and often how you can talk about it with the very people inflicting the damage and um, come out the other end, you know, intact in some way um, about about negotiation and conversation. It said a lot about your, I guess, relationship with memory and place and how the uh, little vignettes set in the past are still in first-person present narration. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by um, where we sit in a narrative as a reader. And when um, someone's working in, you know, first person, obviously there's going to be that kind of shared intimacy with, with the reader. But also, I'm fascinated by the way, um, you know, tense changes and shifts and takes us into different places. Once again, as with Hollow Worth, um, this memoir is all about the relationship with the reader. And you've got to be, when you're talking about a lot of issues, um, which I do, um, you've got to be careful not to actually just, you know, get into that telling mode, Mm. you have to invite the reader to participate and to take what they want and leave what they want because it's their life too and they they want to have their life as they read. They don't want to have my life Um, and I wouldn't want to inflict or impose upon them myself as such. So though it's personal, obviously, memoir is, it's also a conversation with the reader. So there are intimacies and distances that take place in the work that are all about, um, you know, if you and I were sitting in the room and um, wanting to have a yarn like we're doing now, it'd be much like we are having literally now. And um, if, you, let's say, you, we had very different opinions about something, well, we'd talk through it and we'd illustrate it with experiences from our own lives and say, well, this is what I felt when I did this. And the book tries to capture that feeling at the same time as I guess it's got sort of more essayistic information at times because I'm a I'm a collector of detail and information and I like sharing it with people. So if I observe something um, that I think is relevant, that detail will come in. So you'll get um, uh, you know more detailed sections um, that are observational, um, where in a sense I'm I'm almost distanced from because I'm relaying information. And then we go back to the conversation. Mm. And on that conversation, a lot of the book is made up of both past and present experiences of people in Western Australia's, I guess, reactions and attitudes to your more left-wing, progressive, very (laughs) almost anarchist, I guess, lifestyle. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you also, there's a lot of points where you have conversations with people and you you, you make that dialogue. Oh, yeah, I love people. This is the thing. 
people are great, Max. I yeah. mean, this is it. Even, look, people that you prefer, and look, honestly, there are not that many people that I come into contact with who would agree with, you know, 50% if uh, more of what I say. Um, but, you know, I have found in my life, uh, and I've met some many extremes of people, um, is that if you can engage on a personal level and have respect for them as 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 humans, as um, you know, as intact in entities, if you like, like I'm an intact entity, like uh, you know, that, that they have agency and that you know they've got the rights that you've got, then you you work something out. And if they feel like I'm an intact entity and I've got rights as well, then we can get somewhere. Mm. Where you have problems, and I have had problems, and some of them are noted in the book, is where there's such an attitude of hate. But um doesn't matter what you try and do and say, look, you know, we can find some common ground. There's only a kind of um, combative, um, almost violent and often literally violent um, response. And you can't get past that. That's very difficult to deal with when someone's just overtly violent mm. and full of hate, especially uh, racist hatred or misogynistic hatred or that kind of or a kind of um, general identity hatred. Um, where they feel that someone's difference is so overwhelming to them that they can never, ever find common ground. Well, I don't believe that's ever the situation. And I will always try, um, even if I'm in a protest or something. You know, I've many, um, I've argued with many um, a, a legal enforcement officer, if you like, over my life. Mm. I've also had many conversations with them about, you know, for example, I remember at one protest where I was, um, there was an asbestos contamination risk. And I was talking to one of the officers and saying, you know, the thing is, you're putting yourself at risk doing this. You have a union. You should be using it and saying, that, you know, you might not agree with we, the protesters, but surely you have a family or, you know, friends or people that you go home to and you're covered in asbestos dust and you've just had to stand there because you're told to stand there. That's not right, is it? Mm. And, you know, eventually you see a light shine and get through and, and, and you know something at some point in their life they'll say, you know, we shouldn't have to do this. Um, this is wrong. And so there are funny little overlaps. And to me, it's all about those overlaps rather than about the massive differences. And, you know, that's how you can live in a um, community, a relatively conservative community. And, um, you know, something goes wrong, a neighbor you might politically disagree with, you're both out there trying to fix the situation and you're both camaraderie, um, you're both working together, you see the best and the worst in each other and then you go back to being you know, separate again because you're so different. But it's an interesting thing how crisis and you know, as a lot of Australia experiences, um, especially with um, you know, the massive impacts of human-induced climate change, um, if we don't find community and we don't work together, we all go. And um, I suppose part of the, the message of this book is, though I'm incredibly different, though I irritate a lot of you, people don't believe a lot of these things, and I understand that. But there's no reason why we can't work together with equal passion and uh, care and try and make something better. So, you know, that's in a nutshell, the philosophy behind the book, and it's the philosophy behind the way I try and live my life as well. You've you've done some quite drastic protests, including standing in front of bulldozers and that yep. kind of thing. But you also maintain in the book that protesting isn't simply demonstrating in public, but it's also a changing of 
your habits and your impact on the world. Max, that's the major thing. It's easy to go. It's not easy, but it's in some ways easier to go and you know stand with a group of people. Or even in my case, I'm often standing on my own in protest with a sign just standing there and um, you know making my statement. I mean, you know, I, I am protest is an ongoing part of my situation. Mm. That's what I do. You know, I will be in London and um, I will. Uh, you know, as people can find on various YouTubes and things people have taken over the years, be standing, you know, on the Thames outside the um, uh, Tate Modern, reading a peace poem during the time of, you know, the uh, um, the so-called uh, coalition's um, uh, bombing campaign against um, um, Syria, and I'm reading a peace poem there, and it's being recorded. And that's that's an active protest as much as marching. Marching is important too, but the actual use of poetry and art to do that to me is an ongoing thing um, and, and can't be separated out. But in the end, probably the most important thing is exactly how we live. Um, if we are less consumerist, which is probably my prime drive in all things, I mean, I buy things. Everyone buys things. Everyone has world. to buy things, yeah. Yeah, we, and I'm not saying that, you know, you can't in the world as it's constructed, certainly in Australia and Western countries and many other non-Western countries, I might add too, is that, you know, that, that basic dynamic has been long in place and it's very hard to get around. You can minimise it, though, and you can not, you know, just, you know, buy an object uh, for the sake of buying an object because it's fashion or buying an object because, you know, you've got to keep up to date or many, you know, innumerable other reasons like that. Um, you can be less consumerist. Being less consumerist is probably the most decisive thing in terms of less, less you know, damaging environmental impact. Um, and using public transport where it's possible. Sometimes it's not. But on and on the list goes. They're micro decisions that we make every single day on how we um, interact with the biosphere. And I suppose my argument in the end is um, none of us are perfect. Some of us are very far from it. But any gestures we make are cumulative. And you've got you know billions of people making micro gestures in terms of their relative capabilities and what their obligations and situations are. It does make a difference. And when you come to, you know, I'm a person that believes in the redistribution of wealth. I don't believe people should... Um, have you know uh, vast wealth? I, I think mm. it should be shared. I, I do not believe that the mining billionaires should have that money. I do not believe it. I, I think fundamentally the idea of the rich philanthropist who can buy policy by giving money and manipulate um, public opinion and manipulate even educational institutions and so on by donating money that's largely got from stealing from um, Aboriginal people and damaging the earth. Uh, and feeding the you know decaying of the uh, decay of the biosphere, I think that's wrong, and I do. I don't think that um, you know I think they should have the right to any other to life like all of us. Um, I'm not trying to say otherwise, um, and they should be respected as people as much as anyone else should be respected as a person. But one does not respect their wealth or power and the way they got it, and it should be not the case. I, I strongly feel this. And if the very rich, rapacious people had less. That would be already a good um, journey, I think, to go on in terms of lessening the impact, especially the consumerist impact on the world. But, you know, they're the kinds of opinions um, said peacefully and as a pacifist that very much upset people. As soon as you mention a redistribution of wealth and that um, the poorest should have the same amount as the richest and we should all have equal share because it's all stolen from the planet 
in one way or another. And if it's not stolen, um, then people are living in a good relationship with the Earth. And they, they're taking and giving at the same time, which is surely how we should live with the planet rather than just taking, taking, taking. So they're the kind of opinions that <laughs> yeah. I just gave you that tend to cause some um, irritation um, when I'm talking with people. But, you know, it's not meant in a... Um, in an aggressive or confronting way even, or confronting, it is meant to be confronting, it's not meant to be in a way that's threatening, uh, certainly not threatening. It's a way of trying to open people to a different kind of conversation of how we can we can be, you know, mutually benefit each other and we can, you know, the, the great anarchist philosophy of mutual aid, the, the idea that we actually, we get ahead by helping each other and sharing, I strongly believe in. The book places a lot of focus on anti-colonialism as well, and you especially make the point that in the fight for Indigenous rights, animal rights, anti-discrimination, environmentalism, all of that, that all comes under the the umbrella of anti-colonialism. And a term I've heard a lot is decolonizing yourself, which is like reducing the the ways under which you live under colonialism. What are some ways that listeners could perhaps start to do that if they'd like to? Well, this is totally possible, Max. I mean, the thing about it is, um, you know, it's easy to say the word decolonisation and just keep being the colonialist so many of us are. Exactly, um, yeah. I don't believe we have to be. Um, I believe that, um, you know, we live in, a, in communities where there are constant dynamics between people being more colonised and others who are being more colonising. And um, what we do collectively is surely, um, in terms of wealth distribution or redistribution, there's a bit of uh, ethics um, redistribution, the morality redistribution that has to go on at times as well, I think, in the sense that um, we we all, uh, as humans, we all have, to my mind, the same rights. We have the right to life. We have the right to, you know, um, to, to live as decently as we can without imposing on others, you know, the basic human rights. We all have those. Hmm. But we also have, I do believe, the right to expect of ourselves and of others um, a kind of understanding that um, that difference is best accommodated, and we all have the right to be different. The difference is best accommodated by allowing other people's space to be different. And one of the problems with um, ongoing colonialism, and we do live in a world of ongoing colonialism, I articulate that in the book in many ways. Mm. I believe we are a colonial country. I believe we live in a world that is very much about... Uh, uh, colonizing dynamic, one that needs to be addressed constantly. Um, And there are ways we can get around this just in our normal interactions, and that's to realize any benefit we have in life that somehow lifts us above others has come at the expense of someone else. Mm. And it may not seem obvious, but it has. And that doesn't, I'm not suggesting that people have to be at the point where they're having a crisis and, you know, getting horrifically depressed because they feel they're exploiting others just by being. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, cherished life is really worth keeping. It's really worth having. It's great. And, and, and it should be great. It's, it, you know, we're making it very ungrate for everyone, but it doesn't need to be that way. Um, and, and I think the simple principle in terms of um, the, the decolonizing spirit is to be aware um, that everything you're getting that makes you feel more comfortable um, materially especially, but also ethically, has probably cost someone else something somewhere morally or ethically. So you take, for example, speaking self-critically, 
Um, you know, I've been a vegan now for 34 years, and pretty well I would like to think that that has meant less impact on um, animals, certainly less impact on the environment, damaging impact, and less damaging impact on people. But I also have to be aware that there's something rising called I call the new vegan consumerism. Um, and, you know, people will buy a vegan product and not think about the fact that, you know, the palm oil in it might have come from the destruction of yeah. a vast jungle. It's still, <laughs> in, still based in, in exploitation of some kind. Yes. And so you need to, so then you need to nuance the way you choose what you're, you know, so you're eating vegan, you need to choose certain, to eat vegan in a certain way. You constantly need to be self-critical. Mm. And you never, the moment you think you're holier than thou, and that you're ethically superior or ethically doing a better job than the guy down the road, then something's gone radically wrong and you've become just um, what I call, uh, this is a term I use in a book I'm now writing uh, on the brownfield and greenfield sites and stuff, camouflaging. You're camouflaging your own ethics and your yeah. own ethical culpability. And it's very, very easy. Um, you know, so within the uh, world climate environment movement, fantastic people out there doing great work, really trying to bring you know, the world's attention to the crisis. But you have to be careful in this that you don't suddenly start camouflaging your own rapacities and behaviours by being an activist um, who's being activist to the public but privately still just being the same old consumer. So I call that camouflaging. And the and it has a military overtone because so often these things are militarised and become weaponised um, because they're used by companies, they're used by governments and so on to manipulate the way people's attitudes are controlled. Um, and so there's constantly, you need to have an awareness of how what you're doing might be misused and also to be aware that the more contradictions you have in what you're doing are going to ultimately feed the um, kind of forces of uh, rapacity that you're opposing. So. Decolonization, to, to my mind, personal decolonizing, the act of decolonizing on the personal, is being aware of the hypocrisies and being aware that you have to, um, you know, never think yourself, um, you know, suddenly uh, having got to a point where you're you're better than or because you never are, never are, mm. one never is. It's an ongoing thing, and we have to change and adapt and understand others around us. We are actually all in this together. Uh, we're all different, and we all have um, the rights of difference, but we are all mutual as well. And um, that really matters. And I, I think like memoir is a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's, it's like on one level an ego trip. It's talking about the self, um, but at the same time it's talking about people, and it's talking to the reader. And so what makes this memoir different, I think, from my other memoirs, and it is, it, it is trying to be a memoir about discussions around the ethics of, of living and your relationship to place um, without trying to tell someone else what their relationship to place is because I don't know that. I only know my own and that I'm uncertain about. So, you know. Before we wrap up, you did mention that you've been uh, a vegan for, I think, 34 years, you said. 34 years, yeah. yeah. Um, so as somebody who is very conscious of their of minimising their impact on the environment and everything like that, with all that in mind, do you have a particular favourite vegan recipe that you could share with the listeners? Well, okay, I'll tell you what, if you want vegan recipes, my uh, on our blog, usually said, especially early on, my partner, uh, Tracy Ryan, poet and novelist, uh, and also very long time, I think she's been a vegan for 25 years or something, um, uh, or thereabouts, 
um, she she used to put a lot of recipes up. And I did this article for the conversation last year on living vegan for 33 years as it was as an ethical vegan for 33 years, and looking at the um, the shifts in the new veganism and talking and 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 there's a recipe on there that apparently the people who ran the article, the conversations, that um, seems to have really appealed to people and people have actually written and asked for the recipe. Um, but that's it. So at the conversation, if you go in and just, you know, vegan ethics, John Kinsella, 33 years vegan, you'll find it and you'll see a picture of the dish on there, which apparently proved very popular. That is some of my favorite vegan food. As I said, my partner is, you know, she sort of made an investigation of nutrition and veganism for the last quarter of a century mm. because of raising children. You know, we've yeah. raised our children vegan. And um, and the article looks at the ethics of um, you know, raising children vegan and what choice and all these sort of issues. That's what it's sort of discussing. Um, and uh, like our son, who's 17 now, is very much a person of his own mind and his veganism is very self-determined and we you know he is what he is because he chooses to be and he's very articulate in um how he sits in relationship to the world and where the people say oh well you were raised that you didn't have a choice and as yeah. he points out well you didn't have a choice how you were raised either exactly, you get yeah. to a point well you get to a point where you make your own choice and he's made his own choice that he that's the way he wants to be that's fine this is all about mutual respect everyone's got their own journeys and i respect that too is the joy of actually trying to do something because you feel strongly and passionately about it and that you actually really care what you're feeding people and, and what people are eating and so on. And uh, like when I grow vegetables, I feel passionately about that as well. It's, it's all about the kind of caring process. So the meals I've liked best are the meals where I feel that uh, whoever's cooked them, if they're done with care and compassion, for the people eating them and, and the origins of the foodstuffs, then that, for me, is a great vegan meal. Oh, absolutely. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no worries, Max. I've enjoyed it. Displaced, A Rural Life is published by Transit Lounge and is available on our website at goodreadingmagazine.com.au or any good bookshop.